Well, it is a great joy to be back. I really enjoyed coming to uh, Liverpool Baptist and I was quite thankful that uh, Paul decided to invite me again. That means that last sermon went okay, I guess. So no promises now, uh, especially with time limits. Uh, but having said all that, I am grateful to Pastor Paul and the elders for having me along once more to be here. Uh, also because I have half my clan at this stage. There's, they're over there in that section there. So if you hear a lot of our men's, they're just supporting me and probably thinking our other sermon's okay as well. Uh, but I am thankful to the Lord for another opportunity uh, to preach. Um, last time I was here was April last year. And Paul gave me the most difficult passage to preach from in Sodom and Gomorrah and he said, I want you to show them Jesus through that. Now that was quite difficult. Today, he gave me a a door and he said, just preach from wherever you would like. So um, I've had on my heart actually to bring to you a passage or a thought or I guess um, a way of looking at life through Esther. Um, But before we get going, how about I pray as well? Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable before you, Lord. Lord, I ask now that your spirit will come upon these people and they will forget the man, that you would help them take away the error, the untruth that comes from these lips. And to absorb all truth, O Lord, that's all that matters. Let us have eyes, Father, that we see you through the Son by the Holy Spirit, Father. Otherwise, this is fruitless, pointless, futile, be magnified. O Lord, let us see you. I beg, Lord, that you would let us love you more. So as we look at Esther and see how you have spoken to her, And now, by extension, us, that we will live for your glory and your glory alone. In the name above all names, in the name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen. It's the star date 459444.1. Stardate 459-44.1 and the Starship Enterprise, the only real Starship vessel, by the way, after conducting a magnetic wave survey of the Parvinian system, encounters an unusual probe. It's an actual satellite that scans the ship when an invisible beam tethers itself to Captain Jean-Luc Picard, the only real Star Trek captain too, by the way, rendering him not really unconscious but in a deep sleep. Captain Jean-Luc Picard wakes up to the caring face of his wife, Eline, but Captain Jean-Luc Picard is not married. On the planet, we later find out to be Catan, but Captain Jean-Luc knows of no such planet. What's going on? Jean-Luc, in desperation, believes he has somehow woken in the holodeck, the virtual reality room. Is this a hologram experience? Is this maybe an exercise? Jean-Luc taps his personal communicator... Computer, close program. Computer, and simulation. But that's not working. Can this be real? 
It can't be. Jean-Luc quickly picks himself up, fumbles for the door and makes his way out. Eileen watches him stupefied with sorrow and pity in his eyes. And Jean-Luc is out of there. He has to find out what all this means. Being a scientist slash researcher slash explorer, who better to get to the bottom of this new life than Jean-Luc? Several hours later, Jean-Luc comes back at the doorstep at which he set out to find out that this woman, these surroundings, this life, Eileen, this planet, Catan, this home, is not only a real experience, but it is his experience. This is his life, at least for now. And this is how we find Esther. She is a Jewish girl with her motherland being Palestine. Or how about we just keep it a bit simpler? She's a girl that comes from the region of Jerusalem. Esther finds herself now not only in a palace, but in the palace of King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, the mightiest and most powerful man on earth. And Esther, she's not just a spectator. Oh no, she's now the main woman in the king's harem. The queen of Persia, no less. What's going on with her? What's a good Jewish girl doing in a place like this? Now, that sounds like a pickup line in a bar in Bethlehem. But, but nevertheless, what is Esther, a Jewish girl, doing in the king of Persia's palace? Well, we need to do a little bit of backtracking. How does Esther's narrative unfold? Well, our story begins with the king of Persia. He gives a massive feast, and it's at the Black Tie Affair. You know the, you know the deal. The all-important dignitaries are to come along, caviar and the cocktails and the like. And after showing his treasures, after completing his conquering expeditions, along comes King Ahasuerus, and he wants to show one last piece one last piece of his treasure, so he summons Queen Vashti into his presence. Chapter 1 tells us, bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti gives the king the cold shoulder. She won't go to him because she's no one's trophy, of course. But did I mention that King Ahasuerus is the most mightiest, the most powerful man in the planet? So the king gets rid of Queen Vashti. After King Ahasuerus' blood pressure normalizes, he remembers he no longer has a queen. Oh, what to do? No problem, say his advisors. Let's have a beauty contest. So in Esther chapter 2, we hear this. Gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Well, of course this is going to please the king. He's got all these women now walking down the catwalk and he's going to choose the most beautiful one out of all of them. And the beauty contest begins. We are then introduced to two Jews, Esther. And Mordecai is Esther's guardian cousin. Esther is, well, well, let's read it. Esther 2.7 says, He, referring to Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther. So Hadassah is Esther's birth name. It, it, it means myrtle tree, symbolizing God's provision. But now, but now she's actually changed the name to Esther 
which means star, derived by the name they gave to the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. So what Esther is doing is she's amalgamating herself into the culture, you see. And also it says that Esther had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Do you hear that connection between her and Queen Vashti? Esther was also lovely to look at. The author is preparing us for what is to come by that connection. And so we find out in Esther, verse 9 of chapter 2, pleased the king and won his favour. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and a portion of food and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. The very next verse tells us that not all is being disclosed. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Esther is withholding some vital piece of information. She doesn't want to reveal her ethnicity. She doesn't tell the king, I'm a Jew. And so we proceed. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Yes, everything's set up for the perfect Cinderella story now, isn't it? The scene is set for the fairy tale to end just right now. Right now we will normally say, and they lived happily ever after. But indeed, that's not reality though, is it? The story continues with the introduction of a new character, Haman. The king promotes Haman to second in charge above all the officials of the kingdom. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, but Mordecai, Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Why would he not bow down? For he had told them that he was a Jew. You see what Mordecai is having in Mordecai? He believes to bow down to a man would to be violating, would to violate his conscience as one of Yahweh, Jehovah's chosen people. What happens? And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. And now the plot thickens. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So Haman hates Mordecai so much because Mordecai, a Jew, will not bow down to him. This Haman wants to destroy all Jews. Haman approaches the king, informs him, there's this mass of people, the Jews slash Christians, they, they don't follow the law of the world. A people, they don't keep the king's laws. They won't bow down to us. These people are worth, aren't worth keeping. The king shouldn't tolerate them. So Haman offers a ridiculous amount of money to the king to exterminate them. And the king consents. After all, they are not obeying the laws of the mightiest and most powerful man on the planet. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate 
all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day and to plunder their goods. But now the plot thickens even more. Is not the anonymous Queen Esther also a Jew? In fact, she is. Mordecai hears of the plan. He dresses in mourning clothes. You know the deal, sackcloth and ashes. What is he to do? He sends notice to Queen Esther. Mordecai also gave him, to our passage, the messenger, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, for the, for the Jews' destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. But the problem is, Esther just can't rock up to the king without being summoned. There's a protocol. So she responds to Mordecai, verse 11 of our passage, and says, All the king's servants... And the people of the king's providences know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Mordecai, you are nuts. I just can't rock up without being called. The king's going to kill me. And besides, if I do, I will have to confess who I am. If I show my face and plead the case for my people, I will have to confess that my name is Hadassah. Declare my allegiance to Yahweh, Jehovah. I will have to confess that I am a Jew and everyone in the world, everyone in the palace will know I am part of God's chosen people who are to be killed. Suicide. It is suicide. I can't do it. I've worked too hard to get where I am now. I have competed with the world. Granted, I've used my body and my looks to get where I am, but it's hard work. Don't you know what it's like to suffer the abuse in a harem? I'm now queen. I am the queen. Try not to quote me like that. But I am the queen. I have made it in this world now. I I am on the top. What you're asking, Mordecai, is that I risk my neck to potentially save God's people? I could lose everything I've worked for in the moment that it takes to circle the king's courtyard. I hope you hear me, Mordecai. If I try this, I will be killed. See, Esther starts first thinking about surviving. Self-preservation by doing, well, Nothing. Even in the midst of a threat to her own life, to her own people. Remember, she is a Jew. Self-preservation. That's why her first response is, I can't do this. My life will be turned upside down. You see, I can't go to the king for you or for my people. It just doesn't fit in my plans. My plans never involved me struggling to achieve only to be killed in the process. Again, this is just suicide. Beloved, we enter this world and somewhere along our lives we come to develop a picture of what my world should look like. My world is supposed to look a certain way so I make plans for my world to turn out accordingly. You know, we, 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 then, we then convince ourselves that my world is made up of the successful outcomes of my plans. 
So when I see my projects come to fruition, I begin to think that my world is built upon the framework of all my successfully achieved plans. But what happens when my plans don't succeed? What happens when life interrupts my plans? A spanner is thrown in the cogs and machinations of my plans. What happens to me and the world I once knew? The world I pictured to be my world is not here anymore. If my life isn't turning out how I planned, whose world then is this? Like Jean-Luc Picard, I find myself waking up to a world that is foreign to me. It's not working out how I thought it would. I'm supposed to be the king now. I question everything. Is this my world? But beloved, it is your world. You're living in it now. For now. Like Esther. My world may be interrupted by the plans of others, the circumstances of life, and the, the intrusion of life by the sobering reality that I may need to think of others. When my life hits a detour that is unplanned, I feel helpless because I'm unprepared. I haven't projected future scenarios to prepare for this. So what's my response in the unrehearsed state of unplanned life? I'm anxious. What am I to do? There is no life manual. And what makes matters worse is the decision that I must take when life interrupts my plans. It's no longer about in these moments of interruption. It's no longer about what is best for me, although I I may think it is. But what is right? What is virtuous? What is noble? What is righteous? And the hardest decision is between two poles. Doing what is easy and doing what is righteous. And doing what is righteous will sometimes feel like suicide. It's so counter to our, you know it, it's so counter to our default status as humans of self-preservation, but it's only suicide when my life is the only one that is given for my sake. But it is love when your life is given so others may have life. Esther has this very drama. What to do? What has she got to do? She needs to be shaken out of her self-preservation in order to do what is right, even if it won't be easy, even if it seems she may need to give up her life for the salvation of others. Giving up everything, everything, everything she is and has become to save God's people. She needs to realise her plans need to yield to grander plans. So then Mordecai receives a response. This is what she says. Verse 12. And they told told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. See what Mordecai brings to Esther's mind? You can do nothing now. Save your bacon. And you will be saved for a couple of weeks, a few months, a year, a few years, maybe. 
maybe really from some suffering, but eventually you will be caught out. Just because you're in the king's palace, in security, just because you have a high-paying job now, just because you have job security now, just because you have great health now, just because you have a thousand friends on Facebook and twice as many on Twitter now, righteousness is knocking at the door. There's only so many times righteousness will knock with you telling it, come back another time before it just comes one day without knocking and kicks the door open. In fact, Esther, it seems the day of righteousness is ready for you. Righteousness is at your house, Esther. It's knocking. No, no one answered. It's in now. But you have the opportunity now, Esther, to mediate. What will Esther do? Will you do anything? Will you do what is easy or what is right? Think about it. Let's take a moment. When I go off script, it's always dangerous. What will you do? Imagine the state of this earth, this world. If, If we engage in Christian self-preservation where we may say, I'm saved. There was a time that I was hanging by a spider's web over the pools of hell and my saviour came and lassoed me, brought me to the kingdom of God and I'm saved now. And if you say that, I'm going to utter an amen to you. Yes, amen. But what about those still hanging over the pool of hell? Are we not to act for them? Are we not to speak for them? Are we not to give our lives for them? Yes, yes, I, I hear you. I can hear you say that you are saved. I know you're saved. But what about my brother or sister, my extended family, my work colleague, my obnoxious neighbour, my irritating boss, my life-sapping uni lecturer, my hairdresser or barber if you're a bloke, my, my gym buddy, do they need grace also? I'm sure they do. What about them? What do I do? What will Esther do? Now Mordecai throws Esther a curveball. Verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Did you see that coming? Did you hear what he just said then? Whatever does he mean? What, beloved, what does he mean? If you keep silent, do nothing. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. And with but you and your father's house will perish. What does he mean? Firstly, this is Esther. She's the queen. Doesn't Mordecai know how important she is? Of course the Jewish people need her. She's the most important person in the whole of the world for the Jews. Do you hear that choir in your life singing this over your own precious life? Oh, Wally, you are so special. The world needs you, Wally, in your long preaching. Without you, Wally, the world will be at a great loss, Wally. And of course I I usually get the very opposite, but... But you get my point. How dare Mordecai tell Esther, and really, by extension, you and me, that we are not really needed. That's offensive in 2018. I've been told by the world that I'm special and unique. 
I can do anything that I set my mind to. I might even be able to become, become a pilot if I just get my head together. The world will be worse off without me. Oh, beloved, we must come to the realisation, and I pray very quickly, that the world will keep spinning on its axis even if my graceful presence leaves its stage. What is Mordecai insinuating then? What does he mean? Mordecai is telling Esther, and again to you and me, that we all have a unique role to play in the outworking plan of God. A unique role to play, but not necessarily in our own plans, but in the divine providence of God's unfolding plan. After all, has it ever struck you how the author keeps talking about her looks? Why does he do that? Why is it so important about her looks? It's Esther's looks that win her the beauty contest. It's Esther's looks that pleases the king. It's Esther's looks that make her queen. And then give her the opportunity to save God's people. Hmm? Why? Why the attention on her beauty? Oh, Wally, you say because she was so beautiful and the author had to document it, of course. And I agree, but is that it? That she's just a stunner? Is that what it's all about? How does anyone achieve such beauty that it's worthy to be written about in the Bible? How do you gain that beauty? Can I make myself beautiful, so beautiful that sonnets and poems should be written about? And I'm looking at my wife and I can see her shaking head. No, don't try. Can it be that God needed Esther in the womb, birthed and blessed Esther with hypnotising beauty so that Esther could one day win a beauty contest and then gain a seat in the kingdom of Persia and help save God's people? And she would never be able to say, I did this. See my skill? It's all about me. Look at my own efforts. You would have to say to her, how did you make yourself be born beautiful? You see what he's doing? She would have to say, God did this in me. It's beyond me. God blessed me with beauty and with this blessing that I have from God. He's used me to bring me to this very kingdom palace. He has planned my life from birth. His spirit providentially orchestrates events. His word will now be on my lips. And do we remember Esther's birth name, Hadassah? What does that mean? God's provision. You see, beloved, you may wake up to a world that you find strange and unlike the world you have planned, but when you live as an instrument of God with his outworking plan, every moment of your existence is full of purpose, full of meaning, because you were born for it. When you live for greater purpose, greater and grander plans than your pesky little plans, every life detour is God working for you to act as God's instrument. So everything that is unplanned by you and unfolding before you is a reassurance that there is another one making plans for you. I need to reassure you today, in whatever situation you find yourself, whatever predicament, whatever life event, if it seems like a blessing or a curse, this is your world. This is your existence. This is your life. It leaves us with one choice. What will you do with now? What will you do? 
nothing? Take the path of least resistance? Or will you do what is righteous? After all, look what else Mordecai tells Esther. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Beloved, yes, you are unique. Oh, yeah. And you are special in God's eye, without a doubt. But let us not get too big-headed here. If you will not act and speak on behalf of God, God will use another. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. I didn't even have to interpret that for you. So it's a privilege, isn't it? A privilege to involve yourself in the salvation of God's people. How will you be remembered into eternity for always as a Christian? As the one that should have put it but didn't? But Esther will need more prompting, just like us. He ends in verse 14 and he says, And now, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You know, preachers tend to look at these passages and get stuck on the main point, and I want to, I'm going to say it in a moment, but before I go there, I had to stop and say, what kingdom, Mordecai? What are you talking about? What kingdom is Mordecai referring to? Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You know, we're Bible readers, we think he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about the kingdom of heaven here, because as we heard earlier today, God is not mentioned once in the book of Esther. Not once. So to talk about the kingdom of God now is to confuse the issue. Oh no, Mordecai is speaking like this. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom, that is, the kingdom of this world, this broken, immoral kingdom. Who knows whether you, Christian, have not come to the kingdom, this morally loose kingdom, for such a time as this. God speaks through Mordecai. Beloved, who knows whether you have not come into this world for such a life as this. Now I hear you say, I know, I can hear you from here. But Wally, I'm just a desk jockey. I clock in at 9, sit at my desk, push a few buttons, fly my desk, then at clock out at 5pm, back at the rat race, catch a train, little activity, dinner, bed, rinse and repeat. But beloved, do not turn your nose down at the desk jockey after all. Has not Esther become the queen of the mightiest and most powerful kingdom on earth from a beauty pageant contest? Whether you're blessed with looks or brains or both, your life may not look like the life you pictured in your mind as a teenager. Your life may not look like the life of the rich and famous. Your life may not even look like the life of the joyful pictures on Facebook. But God did not make a mistake in his plans when he knit you in the womb and gave you his breath of life. Nor did God make a mistake in the concoction of your DNA and sent his Holy Spirit into your soul and uttered the words within the chaos of your heart, let there be light and showed you Jesus. He doesn't make mistakes like that. You are not mistaken. This is your world. This is your life. Who knows whether you have not come into this world for such a life as this right now. When Esther hears Mordecai's exhortation, she makes a decision. She will do what is righteous. So she says this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, 
and hold fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink three days, night and day, I and my young women. Young women, not young men. Talk young women, women. That should, you should read this, memorize this and have it in your heart. Young women, go hard. Sometimes it takes the women. I, my young women, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and listen to what she says. If I perish, I perish. A woman said that. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Amen. And from that decision, I hope you've read it, the acting, the speaking on behalf of God, Esther was used by God in the most intriguing and stupendous expression of poetic justice and brought salvation to God's people. Great book. It's the star date, 459-44.1. It is now many decades later and the very, very old Captain Jean Picard has been escorted by his do- grown daughter and his grandson out to the community square and a satellite is being launched. Throughout these several decades, Jean-Luc Picard, the scientist slash researcher slash explorer, discovered that this world is dying. It was running out of water, a slow death, its demise is inevitable. This world is dying and he was stuck on it throughout the decades presiding over the death of his best friend, Bataille. And leaning over the deathbed of his wife, Eileen, was testimony that after all these years living on this world, death indeed was inevitable. And so we can be sympathetic with this grumpy old man. I know one. Decrepit Jean-Luc Picard, walking stick in hand, guided to watch this satellite launch, grumbling. What's the point of a satellite? This world is doomed. What good would it do to set up a satellite if this world is dying? What good will it do to probe the skies? And just before the missile is sent, a young, alive Bataille appears before Picard, Picard's best friend. He's young again and alive. And Jean-Luc is still very old. And now Eline appears alive and young. What is going on? And Bataille says, we hoped our probe would encounter someone in the future. Someone who could be a teacher. Someone who could tell the others about us. And Jean-Luc realises it's his epiphany for his life. And he says, oh, it's me, isn't it? I am someone, I'm the one that you find. That's what this launching is, a probe that finds me in the future. And in that instance, Jean-Luc wakes up in the Starship Enterprise. And once Picard realises he's back on the ship, engineer Geordie LaForge announces the satellite is shut down. Picard asks, how long was I out? And Commander Riker says, 20, 25 minutes. And with lightning clarity, Picard joins the dots. Somehow in 20 to 25 minutes on the ship, Picard has lived a whole life in another world. Jean-Luc was awoken to live a whole life, a life that was not part of his plan, but a detour that interrupted his plans. Jean-Luc was chosen to live a life so he could be a teacher to others. That he would live a life 
and be able to tell others about a life that exists beyond what they know. That's our call, isn't it? This world may be doomed. And this world may seem as though it's unrecoverable from its state. It may seem people are lost. But God calls people into his plan and he makes a universe to act it out. There is a call, beloved. Listen, there is a call and a commission to anyone that has ears to hear and eyes to see the urgency. The call is to stand up, to act, do, speak for a dying people. They're everywhere. A dying people that will find salvation in God through Jesus Christ. Just like Esther. Esther was providentially maneuvered to become the very queen of a kingdom. And yet in her success, it wasn't time to forget about the salvation of God's people. But God had placed her there in that life for such a time as this. Christian, do you think that the satellite of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has tethered to your soul was aimless? Luke, you have been chosen to live a life to teach others about a future life. Pleading, what will you do with a story, with a message of the gospel that has been supernaturally implanted in your soul? What are you going to do with it? Who knows whether you have not come into this world for such a life as this? It's not suicide when a life is given so others may live. You may need to give up your life for the salvation of others. You may. You may even have to give up everything, everything that you are and have become to save God's people. And look what I've done. Look what I've done with this rabbit's warren of a sermon. I've led myself and you to Golgotha, haven't I? How can I preach this right now without being reminded, without anticipating a question? Who would give up everything for the salvation of God's people? Have you heard of such a one that has done that? That once lived a world beyond this world? Born into this world that he found that his holy eyes would have seen as foreign. Born into this world that even though dying from his inherent sin would plan to save it. Have you heard that Jesus has come to do this? The Son of God lived an eternal kingdom in eternal reigning power on an eternal throne condescends from eternal ruling power, beauty, honour and glory to show this kind of love. Jesus subjects himself to the will of the Father and climbs the throne of the cross and by giving himself, giving everything he is, eternal in value, sacrifices his love for your salvation. The salvation of God's people. Glory be to our Lord. When you are in the eternal presence of Jesus, when you are in the eternal presence of Jesus, you're going to look back at this life now, as though it were 20 to 25 minutes. This is not only a real existence, it is your existence. This is your life, at least for now.
Let me pray. Father, I ask that you will be magnified by the way that we live our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you, through the preaching of your word, have tethered our hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now that we find ourselves in this world, we may have been awoken by your Holy Spirit to see for the first time what life is about. I pray that we would learn from Esther. Not take the easy road. But we would do what is righteous and participate in the salvation of your people. In your name, Jesus, I pray this.